In just a moment, I'm going to read our scripture passage for our sermon this morning. It's Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. You can start turning there in your own copies of the Bible or follow along in the digital version of the bulletin. As I said earlier, we are continuing this morning our series on the songs of Christmas. And this is the third iteration. We've got one more that uh, Pastor Luke, Lord willing, will bring to us next week. And Mary sang this song that we're about to study after she received a word from God, a, a message delivered by the angel Gabriel that told her that she would be the mother of the Messiah. And after she spent time with her cousin Elizabeth, who would eventually become the mother of John the Baptist, who told Mary that she is to be blessed among women. And as we'll see this morning, Mary's song is a joyful response to God's powerful mercy at work in her life, but it's also something that prepares us to understand what Christmas is all about and also enables us to be strengthened and emboldened and grow in our experience of peace as we await the return of our King. So let's read that passage together now, Luke chapter 1. Verses 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Would you please pray with me? Father, we ask as we turn to your word that you would strike a straight blow with a crooked stick, that you would use me as an instrument in your hands to accomplish your purposes for your people. I pray that we might see Jesus Christ, the child of Christmas, the King of Kings, in all his glory this morning through the work of your Spirit. And I ask that if there are any here this morning that do not yet know Christ by faith, that you would give them that gift as only you can. But for all of us, speak to us according to our need, so that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I know that that words are familiar to at least some of us here in the room. Those are the opening words of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, a historic Christian document that 
helpfully teaches and summarizes some of the core messages of the Bible. And I would be hard-pressed to come up with a more succinct and beautiful description of our purpose in this life and the next. God made us to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. Some of you maybe have been confessing that, reciting that, memorizing that since you were little children. It's something that many of us intellectually understand, but I I know for sure that it's something that all of us struggle to live. So as we turn to Mary's song together this morning, my hope is that it would become a sort of manual for us, a handbook on what it looks like to live out God's purpose in our lives, what it looks like to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Look at what Mary says in verses 46 and 47. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Mary is talking about the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. She's showing us how and why we should glorify God and enjoy him forever. In in hopes of living out this great purpose in our lives, I want us to sit at Mary's feet this morning and ponder with her uh, just three wonderful things. There's a lot we could unpack from this beautiful song, but these are the three things I want us to see. We're going to see God's individual love in verses 46 through 49. Then we'll think about two of God's inseparable traits in verses 50 to 53. And finally, we'll focus on God's indelible grace, focusing on verses 54 through 55. So that's where we're headed this morning. If you're a note taker, individual love, inseparable traits, and indelible grace. First, God's individual love. Uh, Recently, Pastor Luke has been leading us in our study of the book of Genesis, and we've been focusing on the life of Abraham. And one of the points that he's made to us is that Abraham is an incredibly unique character in the history of God's plan to rescue his people. There are many ways in which you and I are not like Abraham. And something similar is going on for us here when it comes to Mary. Earlier in our service, Uh, We confessed our faith together from the Heidelberg Catechism, and we confessed that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, has taken to himself a true human nature from his mother, Mary. What does that mean? We we don't often speak this way in in our circles, but it is true, And, and I think we should remember it that Mary is quite literally the mother of God. She played an incredibly unique role in God's plan to rescue his people. But Mary can still be a guide for us in understanding God's individual love, his particular love, his special kindness that he has, not just in a general and abstract way, but in a concrete and personal way for you and for me. Verses 46 and 47 tell us what Mary is doing in this passage. She is glorifying God and enjoying him, magnifying him and rejoicing in him. It says, God 
has looked upon the humble estate of his servant in verse 48. And there we get uh, the first reason why Mary is glorifying and enjoying God. When Mary says that God looked upon her, she's not just saying that God noticed her in some general sense or he was aware of her existence. Psalm 119, 132 makes an appeal to God that sounds a whole lot like Mary's song. It says, look upon me and be merciful to me. Those two statements are parallel to one another. They're expressing the same idea. And in the broader context of Mary's song, when she says that God has looked upon her, she doesn't mean that God's noticed her. She means that God has set his love on her that he is determined to do her good, that he has moved towards her in particular kindness. But we're not just told in general that God looked upon Mary, but specifically that he looked upon her humble estate. Now, Mary's humble estate is probably referring to the fact that Mary was poor. But it's definitely communicating that Mary understood herself to be someone who was unworthy to receive such an honor and privilege and kindness from God. But there's something else striking about the word that Mary uses here that's translated humble estate. Because it's a word that later on in Jesus' own life and ministry, he would use to describe what his heart is like. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says in in memorable words that he is gentle and lowly in heart. Now that word lowly is the same word that Mary is using to describe her condition here in our passage. So what does this mean? It means the best news about Jesus is that he's like his father. Uh, He shows us what our God and Father in heaven is like, what his heart is like. But it is also good news that Jesus is like his mother and that in his humanity, he reflects his mother's humble heart and condition. Now, I think we need to think a little bit more about this language of God looking upon Mary. This is something that is a theme. It's, it's an idea that is recurrent throughout the scriptures. God's gaze, his special look upon his people. For Mary, God's gaze is a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing. It leads her to rejoice and exult and glorify God. But I think God's gaze or the gaze, the look of another, does not always feel that way to you and me. The uh, French existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, he depicts the experience of being seen by another as a living hell. For, For Sartre, being seen by another made him determined by them and liable to their judgment or condemnation. And I think Sartre was partially right. How many of us at some point in our lives have felt seen in a moment of our shame uh, that made us want to run and hide? How many of us have at some point in our lives experienced the look of another that was not accompanied by love? We felt seen by them, but not loved and welcomed and affirmed. 
Remember our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden. After they sinned and ate of the fruit of the tree, when God went looking for them in the garden, they ran and hid to cover their shame. Here's the truth we need to see this morning as we consider God's gaze on Mary and his gaze on you and me. We talked about it earlier in our service. Ultimately, without Jesus, Sartre is right. Uh, Being looked upon by God is hell. But with the Son of Mary, Jesus Christ, we can know for sure that God's look on us is always a look of delight, always a look to do us good for all of those that are in Christ Jesus. When God looked upon Mary, he was determining to do a great thing for her, but it was also a hard thing. What was God saying to Mary? He was promising to her something that had never happened in the history of the world and has never happened since, that a virgin would conceive and bring forth a son. So what God had promised to Mary would not have been easy to believe. But there's more than that. What God had promised to Mary would have involved real difficulty in her lives. You can imagine what it would have been like for Mary prior to her consummation of her betrothal to Joseph for her belly to be growing and for her neighbors and extended family to be making conclusions and ridiculing and spreading rumor. Many would question her purity and her character. So Mary rightly recognizes in this song the privilege and honor and joy of God's gaze upon her that has led him to do this special thing for her, but we shouldn't miss the difficulty. And I think that leads us to ask, how is it that Mary, this young Hebrew woman, is able to take God at his word? I think if we look carefully at her song, we get an answer to that question. The short answer is that Mary was immersed in scripture. She was steeped in the story that God was weaving throughout the ages in his special relationship with his people. Mary's song echoes language from all over the book of Psalms, but as uh, Daniel read earlier, we see that there is a striking similarity between Mary's song and the song of Hannah, another young woman who was provided with a child through miraculous means. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that Mary was intentionally recasting herself as a new Hannah, although I think that's a possibility. But I think what it means for sure, when we see how much overlap there is between Mary's song and Hannah's, it's telling us that Mary was immersed in God's word. She was immersed in God's character and his actions in history. I don't know how God is at work in each of your lives right now. I don't know how you're experiencing God's special gaze on you if your trust is in Jesus. I don't know how you see uh, God's word being spoken to you and the accompanying difficulties of believing what he said is true and persevering when it involves hardship or suffering. But what I do know is that you, like Mary, can steep yourself in the story of God's rescue of his people, his story that he's weaving through the ages. If you immerse yourself in the scriptures like Mary did, 
then we too can respond to the difficult words of God in our lives with perseverance, with confidence, and also with joy so that we glorify him and enjoy him forever. Uh, I love weddings. I think that's probably a shared sentiment for a lot of people in the room. Uh, But I have a, a sentiment that might not be shared by many. With the obvious exception of my own wedding, my favorite place to look in a wedding ceremony is not at the beautiful bride walking down in the aisle in her white gown. It's a great place to look. Uh, My favorite place to look is at the face of the groom as he is beholding his bride approaching him. Mary knew what Jesus Christ has made even more plain, that for all of us who are welcomed to the Father through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, that is God's heart towards you. That is God's face towards you. His delight is on you, and that means his look towards you is always to do you good. Mary glorifies God and enjoys him forever because she knows God's individual love for her, an individual love which we share through Jesus Christ. She also glorifies God and enjoys him forever because she is able to do what so many fail to do. And this is what we're going to focus on in verses 50 to 53. Mary is able to hold together two of God's inseparable traits that we, in our hearts and in our lives, find it so easy to separate. She holds together God's power and his mercy, his kindness and his severity, his love and his holiness. Mary learned to hold together God's power and his mercy, as we've seen through being a student of the scriptures, through tracing God's heart as he relates to his people in history, the sacred story that the Bible records. Time and again throughout the Bible, God exercises his power to scatter the arrogant in their thoughts, while he demonstrates his mercy by lifting up the downtrodden and the humble. In fact, I think this phenomenon of God's sovereign exaltation of the humble and deposition of the mighty, it actually can be a frame through which we read the whole story of the Bible. So I want to give you just a few examples as we uh, dip our toe into something that Mary was immersed in. At the Tower of Babel, men arrogantly tried to make a name for themselves. What did God do? He scattered them in their thoughts. On the other hand, God graciously made a name for Abraham, a pagan man living lost in his sin. And he made him great promises, and Abraham in humility took God at his word. In the Exodus, God made a fool of the mighty. The plagues of the Exodus were not just uh, general demonstrations of God's power. They were attacks on the apparent might of the Egyptian pantheon, the Egyptian God. So God was demonstrating his power over the proud and the arrogant, even as he was lifting up his humble people and establishing a group of slaves as a nation. To give one more example, in the early days of uh, 
the Israelite monarchy, when God established a king in Israel, God deposed Saul because he had a proud heart like the kings of the nations surrounding Israel. And he lifted up David, who was by no means a perfect man, but a man after God's own heart, who knew what it was to be humble and to repent. We could keep going and list many more examples. In the whole of the history of God's relationship with his people, we see both God's power and his mercy on full display as he exalts the humble and tears down the mighty. In other words, we see in God's history a lesson which Mary had learned to hold God's power and his mercy together. And I wonder, if you're anything like me, uh, whether we have really learned that lesson. I think it's really easy in our heart's relation to God to so emphasize God's mercy that we neglect his power. The result might be that we begin to harbor or tolerate sins in our hearts or lives or, or maybe sins in the lives of others. If this is true of you, if this is something you struggle with, and I know the temptation, I want to warn you, God is merciful. In fact, he's more merciful than you know. But he's also the God who tears down the arrogant and the proud. I think this is convicting for those of us that maybe have become complacent with certain sin struggles in our lives, but it's also good news for those of us who have experienced suffering or hardship or oppression at the hands of someone in a position of power. God will exercise his power to set wrongs right. We need to remember his mercy and his power. It's also possible for us to so emphasize God's power that we neglect his mercy. The result might be that we stop coming to God, as Mary sings in verse 53, to be filled. We know that God uh, sends the rich away empty. Now, that much is clear. But we stop coming to God to be filled. We show up week after week. We perform our dues. We remember that God is our king and our judge and our Lord, that he's worthy of all honor and strength and glory and dominion. And yet... If you look at our lives, it doesn't seem like we remember that God is our Father, that He's our friend, that He's our compassionate Savior. One of the clearest signs that this might be happening for you is uh, you've forgotten what it looks like to extend mercy to others. You're not able to forgive, you stop caring about the poor. The answer Mary learned was not to pick the mushy middle between God's power and his mercy. Uh, To paraphrase G.K. Chesterton, when it comes to God's power and mercy, uh, we need both things at once and both things thoroughly. The truth is God's power is like one beautiful note in a melody and his mercy is another. And his song, the song of his glory, is actually all the more beautiful and enchanting and enlivening for us when we play both notes loudly rather than neglecting one or picking some note in the middle. When we look at Mary's song, she helps us to play both of these notes loudly, to remember both God's power and his mercy 
but the Son of Mary helps us even more. Jesus, the promised child, is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he's the lamb who is slain. He welcomes little children in his arms, and he overturns tables in the temple. He died naked on a cross, and one day he's returning clothed in glory to judge the living and the dead. God is powerful, and God is merciful. Mary learned this, but Jesus shows us these truths most clearly in his life and death and resurrection. So let's strive to hold these two inseparable traits together in our hearts and in our lives, even in this season. We can glorify and enjoy God because of his individual love for us, because of his inseparable traits of power and mercy. And finally, in verse 54 and 55, we see that we can glorify and enjoy God because of his indelible grace. In verse 50, Mary has already told us about God's mercy toward those who fear him. And that word shows up again in verse 54. Mary sings about the remembrance of God's mercy. What does she mean? Well, Mary, as we've seen, was steeped in the scriptures, uh, which for her would have meant that the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. And I think as a result, it's very likely that we can conclude that when Mary is talking about the mercy of God, what she has in mind is the Old Testament concept of hesed. Uh, Hesed is one of those Hebrew words that is difficult to translate because of how much weight it carries. It's often translated steadfast love in the ESV that many of us read. Uh, Other translations render it mercy. Uh, But one biblical scholar, Dale Ralph Davis, defined hesed this way. He said God's hesed, his mercy, his love, his grace, is God's loyal love. It's God's dependable kindness. It's his affection that has been committed to us. It's the covenant love that God has for his special people. And in verse 55, mercy connects this idea of God's mercy, his remembrance of his mercy with his promises to Abraham and to his offspring. God's hesed is his promised love and action to do good for his people. And while hesed is kind of the the dominant word in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the parallel is grace. But either way, what do we see? God acting in history, in preparing the way for the Messiah, and in the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, we see God's indelible grace, that his promise once given is irrevocable, that his mercy, his kindness once bestowed is unchangeable towards us. Why does this matter? It matters because Mary understands that what is happening to her was a part of God's promised plan to Abraham thousands of years before. Mary understood in seed form what the New Testament would later make explicit, that Jesus Christ is the offspring of Abraham. He is both the recipient of the promise and the one through whom God would bless all the nations. 
Jesus Christ is Abraham's offspring, and he also is the servant of God, the true Israel, the one through whom God offers us his help and pulls us near to him. 2 Corinthians 1.20 puts it like this, all the promises of God are yes in Jesus. Our anxious, busy, distracted lives, maybe with the exception of a, a couple weeks of peace and solitude around the Christmas season, although uh, that doesn't feel likely for me. What do they show? They show that we are not very good at believing God's promises. But children, children are good at believing promises. Uh, when I tell my son Judah that he can have ice cream after he finishes his meal, two things are certain. He believes me, and he won't let me forget it. What would it look like if we, who are called the children of God, like Mary, remembered God's promises like that? What would it look like if we actually took God at his invitation to pray God's promises back to him? The, the truth is, God will never forget his promises. It's impossible, and he invites you not to let him. For us, all the promises of God are yes in Christ. You have a far better father than Judah does. So do you remember God's promises? Do you believe them? Are you bringing them to your father in confidence and hope? As we prepare to close, Mary traced through the ages the hand of God's indelible grace. And she saw so much promise in a little baby, but we see even more. Mary knew the beginning of the story. We know the ending. She knew about a Messiah to be born, a Messiah who would soon be in a cradle, but we have heard about a Messiah who has died, a Messiah on a cross. So listen, friends, to Mary's song. Uh, we can be catechized by her. We can learn from her what it looks like to glorify God and enjoy him forever when we see God's individual love for us, his inseparable traits, his indelible grace, his promises, which are irrevocable, but Mary only saw the half of it. We see even more. Because Jesus, the son of Mary, was born, and then he lived in our place, and he died in our place. And he rose from the dead, and he's coming again soon. Would you please pray with me? Jesus, we do ask that you would come quickly. We thank you for your servant Mary, who shows us so much of what it means to glorify and enjoy you forever. And we thank you even more that you have not left us alone but you have given us your Holy Spirit so that we can learn from her, we can learn from you, and we can long with confidence and hope and expectation for that day when we will experience the love of our Father in full, uh, when we will see his power and mercy on full display, and when we will know once and for all the indelible grace, the committed, loyal, 
dependable love that he has for us. Help us to grow in that even now. And may you hasten the day when you come back and make all things new. We pray this in your name. Amen.